Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today we're looking at life together, God's plan for his church. Now, if you've been around LifePoint for a time, you've heard this, so it's not going to be as funny to you today. It may just be more sad. But once upon a time, I purchased a total gym. Because I was aiming for the total body. We do not need greater evidence to realize the total gym was a total failure. But my thinking was that if it's good enough for Chuck Norris, it's good enough for Lane Harrison. Basically the same. It didn't work, not even close. I'm a little upset with Chuck. Here's what I want to ask you. How is it that the human body is so good at healing itself, but unable to fitness itself? You know what I'm saying? You cut yourself, put a Band-Aid on it, a couple days later, it's gone right? You eat a hamburger and fries, a couple days later, it's multiplied itself. I I mean, this is working in the opposite direction here. Am I right about that? That's got to be a result of the fall. That's all I can calculate it up to be. Let me transfer this to a more helpful conversation for us into spiritual Matters. Have you ever considered how it is that God intends for his body of Christ to build itself up? That's what he promises he'll do in the scriptures. Have you considered how it is that he will do that? Well, that's what I want to look at today. Last week, we talked about God's purpose in salvation, to know and be known. And this week, I want to follow up with that for God, with God's plan. How is it that he builds his church And Ephesians 4 outlines for us God's plan for building up the church. Now, we're only going to look at verses 11 through 16, but I want you to know what's come before so you can understand the context. Go with me to verse 1 very quickly, and look what Paul says as he introduces the entire chapter. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so this is the way he begins the whole chapter. Everything he teaches in this chapter is in the context of his urging of us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. What is that calling? It is our call to salvation in Christ. It's it's the way a Christian is supposed to live. And so he, he is exhorting us in the way that we are to follow Christ. And he tells us in verses two through six that there is a foundation for this life in the unity of God. And that is our very source. And then he says in verse seven that grace has been given to each person according to the measure of Christ. So your life is no mistake. Your redemption in Christ is not a mess up. Jesus is working out a perfect plan in you and he has bestowed upon your life a gift of his grace for the purpose of God's plan. 
You see, Jesus, we saw, is worthy to bestow these gifts because verses 8 through 10, three of the most hotly contested verses in all of the New Testament for all that they mean, we don't need to get into that argument. We'll leave it with the scholars. But at the end of those verses, we can be confident to say this, that because of what Christ did in defeating and conquering Satan, he is worthy to bestow these gifts once and for all. And so it leads us to the question, what then is God's plan for you, Christian, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called to in Christ Jesus? I propose to you this morning that life together is at the heart of God's plan for your life, Christian. Your becoming like Jesus largely depends upon the body of Christ, the church. And so here's my proposition for you. Jesus empowers the church for ministry by grace for all to become like him by the gospel. Jesus empowers the church for ministry by grace for all to become like him by the gospel. Now the way I want to run at this message this morning in covering verses 11 through 16 is I want us to look at three M's that show God's plan for life together. Three M's, that's the letter M. And they are this, so you'll be able to track with me. The first one we'll look at is that we are equipped for ministry to grow to maturity and to live in mission. Let me go to verse 11. I'm gonna read verses 11 through 16 for us before we continue. Ephesians chapter four, verse 11. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Bring this to be true of us, Lord Jesus. The first M that I want you to see this morning in the text is this, is that God's plan is that his people be equipped for ministry. God's plan is that his people would be equipped for ministry. You know, there's a common mindset in the church today that ministry is what the professionals do and we're going to leave it to them. They're more experienced, they're more educated, they've got more of something and we'll leave it to them. And the rest of us, we just receive what they put out. 
And depending on your preference, typically it will determine where it is that you go for ministry. If you want to be wild, you'll head to a performer who's got the greatest show. If you want to be amused, you go and find an entertainer who is like none other. And there are plenty opportunities for these today. I was told in a year or so ago of a pastor who, get this, are you ready? This seems to be a common theme. God must be speaking to me today in the writing of this sermon. The pastor works out while he preaches. Y'all are afraid to laugh. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. What an idiot. Idiot. Nothing could be more counter to the purpose of what he's doing than balancing on a ball and trying to hold things while he's communicating. But if you got nothing to say, you need something to distract them with, I suppose. I guarantee it's CrossFit. Now that's a joke, that's a joke. Don't be mad at me, you CrossFitters. I'm just kidding. I say that because it actually is. I was told it was. You see, the Bible reveals a much different plan that we can understand in two parts. How is it that we are equipped for ministry? Go to verse 11. Verse 11, first of all, we are equipped for ministry because Jesus gifts his church through leaders to equip every Christian to serve. Jesus is the one who is gifting his church through leaders to equip every Christian to serve. Now, this is a passage of scripture that should be understood in the whole counsel of God along with another or other passages, principally Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4. We don't have time to cover all of that today. We don't really have time to cover everything in my notes today, but I am going to try and get through it. But I'm speaking explicitly about Jesus' gifts to the church that he brings through leadership. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm telling you. It would be a perversion to say your leaders are a gift to this church. It's okay to laugh at that. However, the giftings that Jesus gives to the church to equip for ministry come through your leaders. That's the gift of grace that Jesus is bestowing here for the way that he wants his church to be led to engage not only in the labor of the congregation, but also to engage the mission of his kingdom in the world. And while we don't have time to cover each of these extensively, I need to outline all five for you, and then I need to give a warning at the end of those. First and foremost is the gift apostle, the apostolic gifting. The word apostle simply means one who is sent. And this gifting functions principally in the area of starting new works and of, of, of establishing those new works in the common faith. So when we talk about common faith, we're talking about what the apostles of the New Testament set forth as the faithful teachings of gospel doctrine from the whole counsel of God's word. Paul tells Timothy, do not entertain any other doctrine, but hold to the things that have been passed on to you. That's what the apostle is focused on. This is most evident in the founding of the church through the New Testament office of capital A, Apostle. 
be clear with me on this. It's important for you to do so. That was an office in the kingdom of God unlike any other for a distinct, unique purpose that does not exist any longer today. Okay, I need you to understand that. That is what I would refer to as capital A apostles. The original 12, that's only five fingers, I know that, but you get what I'm saying, all of them. And then of course, the apostle Paul later came in by his Damascus Road experience. There was a very unique set of qualifications that each one had to meet, principally being in the presence of Jesus during his earthly ministry, having a personal call from Jesus for that, and then being an eyewitness to the things of Jesus. You go, well, wait a minute. Paul didn't walk with Jesus while he walked on the earth, but that's what Acts 9 tells us is Jesus appeared to him to say, stop persecuting my people and begin to lead them. All right. These men specifically became the human authors of the scriptures that we have today in the canon known as the Bible. That was also a distinct aspect of their role. That's not what the apostolic gifting that I'm speaking of here is about. It is surely the most elevated role of the apostolic gifting. But it is unique and not to be repeated today. Rather, what I would call the little a apostles today have a similar gifting, but a distinct call. It is not an office. There is no office of apostle in the world today, according to the scriptures. But this gifting serves a similar purpose in the pattern of starting new work and establishing them in the common faith. I think that the greatest illustration for us of the New Testament apostle would probably be the apostle Paul. We're most familiar with him. We see him go and start gospel preaching works where there was no gospel preaching work. And then he stays just long enough, maybe a year or two, to establish them in a faithful gospel doctrine. And then he puts someone in charge of that work who continues it. And he goes over here and he does the whole thing again. Hence the reason we have the missionary journeys of Paul. The apostolic gifting is most recognized today through the church in church planting, in missionary activity, and that where people are going into places where there is no gospel preaching presence, establishing that presence, and then organizing it for the health and well-being of those people. The focus here is starting churches, organizing gospel ministries, and those kinds of things. Second of all, we are given the gift of prophet. Prophet, again, I distinguish this from the capital P role of prophet in the Old Testament. New Testament prophecy and Old Testament prophets are not identical. I'll try to explain that. But the prophetic gifting is one through whom God speaks to strengthen, to encourage, to comfort, and to build up. Again, this is not an office as the Old Testament prophet was. That would be capital P prophet. The Old Testament prophet spoke, thus saith the Lord. And when the people of God who recognized the prophet of God heard that prophet speak, they received it as if God himself were speaking to them because that's the way God planned it. 
The prophetic gifting in the New Testament era is not the foretelling what has not been recorded, but because those prophecies were recorded in the canon of Scripture that we have before us here, New Testament in the activity of the gifting is a foretelling of what has already been revealed. So it's not a new revelation. It is a foretelling of what has already been revealed. And the prophet has a focus in his work of, of the truth of God's word. I, I would call the, the prophetic gifting kind of the plumb line of the church because it is asking in the gifting, how is our life living up in the righteousness of Christ that has been placed upon us? I believe Peter is probably the best illustration of this in the New Testament because while Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was known as the apostle to the Jews. And essentially his work was to measure up among the Jewish faith and to say, you've rejected Christ as the Messiah. You've missed the revelation of God through his word. And so he's revealing that. And today the prophet the prophetic gifting is pointing people back to the word to see how the grace of God comes to us through the revelation of God in the holy canon of scripture in order to impact the transformation of our life by the renewal of our mind Paul says in Romans 12:2 and to bring about the reality of the righteousness that has been imputed upon us through Christ Jesus in salvation into the day-by-day application of living of our life. The third gift is that of the evangelist. The evangelist is gifted to share the redemptive message of the gospel. These are people who just hold a strong appeal because when they talk about the gospel, people begin to gather around and listen. Now listen, all Christians are commanded to evangelize. Without question, every one of us is to be clear about the gospel so that we can share it with people who have not heard and through our testimony to bring clear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the evangelist has a gifting that, that, that often models and even equips the church to fulfill this and encourages them in this. I have to wonder if Timothy was maybe not an evangelist because Paul instructed Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And every pastor in a church has to do some essence of evangelistic work as the principal core of what we do. But there are just some who are more gifted in this than others. And they're, they're, they, they, they are able to share in such a way that, that doesn't fumble over words and, and create awkward scenarios and things like that. And so the focus of the evangelistic gifting is to share the gospel. And it's often found in being able to connect with a broad variety of people in order to move into the conversation of Jesus Christ and his work for us. Now these last two giftings go very close together. Grammatically, they like to argue, is it two gifts or is it one that align with each other? I'm not interested in settling that argument. It can be two or one. It really doesn't matter because uh, they serve the same purpose. But number four is the gift of pastor. Now, again, this is not the office of the local church today in the New Testament. This is a gifting that we see, a gift of shepherding and pastoring in the church 
And this gifting holds great concern for the care and the growth of the people and care for the godly leadership of the church. This role is held closely with teaching because of the great concern for people. Teaching is typically implemented for understanding for transformation. And so the pastor gift has a focus on the care and the guarding of the flock through the sound doctrine that has been delivered through the apostles and the word of God. The fifth gifting is that of teacher, which demonstrates a great concern to communicate truth so that people can understand and apply. And teachers can like pick up any, people who are highly gifted this way, can pick up any inanimate object and make a perfect illustration of whatever they're talking about and you go, oh, duh, yeah. And that, that's how you know they have the gift of teaching. And so the, the, the focus of the teaching gift is just simply to make truth simple, to make it meaningful, and to make it applicable. I can't help but wonder if maybe James isn't the greatest model in the New Testament for us of this. We know he was the senior or lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem and evidently held a great gift because when we read his letter, it is so practical. It's just nuts and bolts, rubber meeting the road kind of thing. But what he's teaching us is these are the gifts that are given to the church through individuals in order to lead for the purpose of equipping the body to do the work of ministry. So when it says Jesus gave gifts to each one, these are the gifts he's most explicitly highlighting in order to teach us how it is he wants to equip the church. And from these gifts, we see the leadership that the church should have in order to pursue faithfully our mission. Now, let me pause for just a moment and issue one warning. There are perversions of these gifts that are replete in the world today. There always have been, and the ones that we see most active today are not new. They're well over 100 years old, at least in the most recent uh, uh, imagination of them. There is a movement known as the New Apostolic Reformation. It is also called by the third wave of the Holy Spirit. And that movement is a loose association and connection of church leaders who are seeking to restore to Christianity today the offices of apostle and prophet specifically. And what they are trying to do, and the reason that this is a dangerous perversion that should be rejected completely, is that they are seeking to reestablish what I would call a supra-biblical authority of themselves. In other words, what they say holds authority equal to the scriptures or even more so practically. This is not the first time nor the only manifestation of this in the world. If you are familiar with religious teachings, you know that in the Catholic Church, you have the canon of scriptures, you have the history of the church and the traditions handed down, but you also have the Pope speaking ex cathedra, and all three of these have equal authority. We reject that completely. There is no authority equal to the revelation of God as given to us in the Holy Scriptures known as the Bible. I want you to understand that. 
But in the new apostolic reformation and those that are pertaining to speak this are claiming that their words are equal in authority to the Bible. Now, there are ways that they manage this and navigate this, but the fact of the matter is they are wrong about it. It typically comes because it is a movement of the charismatic movement, which was founded in the early 1900s through very high personalities and individuals who demonstrate a high level of gifting. And the charisma is typically the tail that dangles before the fangs get in you to inject their venom. And venom it is, friends. Venom it is. It leads to personality cult. It leads to perversion of God. And using God for man's end and not man for God's end. It's principally identified by focusing on prophetic words with a very strong emphasis in miraculous signs and wonders. I would say it's just another generation of the false teaching that the prosperity type gospel came through and all of these false promises like leeches that attach onto the gospel. You say, geez, can you speak a little kinder? I could speak a little other. Let me tell you why. Number one, Jesus condemned the Jews for demanding more signs when no more were necessary. He said, if you don't believe the sign of Jonah and you keep demanding one more, one more, one more, you're never going to believe no matter how many signs compound in front of you, no matter how closely they impact you. And he went on to warn against the false Christ and the prophets that would arise performing these very signs in his day and in every day after. Paul responded to the Jews by their demands for more signs and preaching this way. He said, we will preach Christ crucified until we can preach no more. That is all we will preach because that is all that is necessary to preach. And that is all that we must be careful to preach because of the gospel. Therefore, Christians today should guard themselves, number one, to not demand more, but to simply believe and trust in Christ. He has provided everything that is sufficient for salvation in the gospel. But neither should you be deceived by signs and wonders, simply to focus on the preaching of the gospel. That took me longer to say than I had planned but it needed to be said. So in verse 11, we see that Jesus gifts his church through leaders to equip every Christian to serve. And then in verse 12, we see the second part of this, that Jesus empowers his church by grace to build itself up through ministry. Look at this in verse 12. Why did he give the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Jesus empowers his church by grace to build itself up through ministry. Friends, grace is not just some nebulous theory It is the wonder-working power of God active among the people of God building up those people and drawing even more in. You see, once rightly equipped, the body of Christ, the church, activates itself in the work of ministry to build itself up. And it tells us 
All Christians, everyone, there are no exceptions, are equipped by the grace of God through Jesus Christ to do the work of ministry for building up the body. Sermons in the worship gathering are important, but they are not enough to sustain your life, friends, and build the church. For the faithful proclamation of the word is a catalyst for equipping the church. But every worship gathering, every ministry and teaching environment and community group the same is not intended to entertain, appease, impress, nor even highlight your social calendar in any way, but it is to equip the one who is participating in it. And so when you attend with no intention to participate, but only you're seeking to be inspired through the next week, to be impressed and try to change your mind about God or about the church, to be more enthused about your faith, I just need a little pick-me-up, or to be energized to do what you already don't want to do and you've already told God you're probably not going to do. When you put an expectation on all of this, that's just never going to be satisfied because it's not the purpose for why you're getting together. When you do that, you forsake God's purpose for your whole life. You forsake it. You see, anything the church does and anything the church demands that takes the focus off of equipping the body only deters from the purpose of the gathering. Each person's expectation for why you gather changes the way you participate when you do gather. God's grace is active among the congregation to accomplish his work when the leaders equip the congregation to serve, to build up the whole. This first, friends, is God's plan that his people be equipped for ministry. Leaders to equip, grace to build up. The second M that I provide for you today is grows to maturity. God's plan is that every Christian labor in ministry so each person grows to maturity. Listen, maturity is the aim of all ministry. It's the aim of all ministry. And listen, If you've ever been a parent, you know this. You cannot mature someone else. You spend your whole life trying and often getting little glimpses of failure, (laughs) right? But what you can do is labor for them to grow in the right place, at the right times, in the right ways, for the right purpose. And that's what the church is about too. Maturity is the aim of, of all ministry, both for the one who is being ministered to, that seems obvious, but also for the one doing the work of ministry. You see, friends, no Christian matures without serving so others can grow. And no person becomes more like Jesus without someone serving for that growth. In serving, the simplest act performed in humble submission produces the most powerful outcome in the church for both the sake of the one serving and the one being served. Let me try to give a really brief illustration of this. You know, we often talk about some of those uh, 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 
first ways that you can serve to get connected with us as a church. And some of those ways are you can, uh, you can serve in hospitality with us to help make the coffee and, and create a welcoming environment. You can serve at the door to greet people when they come through and just say a simple hello. You can, you can pass out the life point notes that we pass out when you come in here each week. And those are important and we never diminish those. As a matter of fact, we raise the priority for them. Are they the highest level of serving? I don't know. I don't like to get into the highest, lowest in all of those ways. But there are other ways of serving that demand more of a person. By the time you lead in a kid life classroom or disciple in a student life group or you lead in a community group in some way or you attain towards eldership even in the church, those levels of leadership have more personal responsibility for you. But it never diminishes the importance of that first line of serving. Why? Because the person who comes into a church who's been questioning God all week, maybe as an expression of deconstructing their faith over the last number of months, they want to know, are these people really doing what they say they're doing? Statistics tell us that the first five minutes when a new person comes onto a church campus, they've already made a decision whether they'll come back. If you don't think looking someone in the eye and saying, hello, doesn't validate, demonstrate dignity, value, and worth to that person, just go a whole day and get ignored by everybody and see how well it makes you feel. Friends, I'm telling you, there isn't anything we do here that's unimportant. That's the reason we don't do it. We don't have time for everything. We got plenty to do with what we gotta be doing. And that's why it's so important. That, that, that every Christian labors in ministry to see every person grow to maturity. So it causes us really to ask the question, what is maturity? Is there anyone in the room today that would like to stand and demonstrate and model for us maturity? That's kind of like the humble question, isn't it? Would anyone in the room stand up and tell us how humble they really are? I don't think so. You know, people start sliding under the chair at that moment. But I mean, we've got, to know where we're, we've got to know where we're aiming for, right? If maturity is our aim, what are we aiming for? It's not an easy answer, and it's one we get wrong a lot. One comparison I would argue about with the church today is that, that, that we need to distinguish between growing and growing up because they are not one and the same. And the church has expended a lot of resource and effort to offer countless opportunities for people to grow, but so often those opportunities come with little expectation for people to grow up. You see, maturity is more than just a process. Maturity is even more than just a point of arrival. For the Christian, Christian maturity is a person. That's what Paul is teaching us here. It's a person to which we attain to become like Jesus Christ. And our aim in serving is that we mature, uh, that, that we see each person mature, that in our serving we want to help them grow so that as they grow, they don't go, you know what, I got it, I'm here, I'm good. 
But they go, I'm going to take what God has said in his word to me by faith and I'm going to look at my life and the way I'm living and ask, where is it being applied? And internally, by the spirit of God that lives within us, he's already speaking and connecting the dots so that we know what he's trying to address. And sometimes it's saying, I need to repent and turn and go another way. And sometimes it's you just need to let go and go because you've been stopping and hesitating where God's been leading. Every Christian knows that feeling. They're in the Christian in the room. There's never been a Christian who doesn't understand what it feels like. And God is not only a feeling, but he's got plenty of them that he delivers, doesn't he? When God is speaking to you. I'm telling you, when you're holding back and holding on and not wanting to move with God, there is a heat that pervades upward along the back of the body and it just showers over the head until you either walk away in open rebellion and admit, I'm not gonna have anything to do with what you say or it subsides when you go, I'm all in. And all of a sudden, the cool refreshment of joy and peace sweeps over your life. And so some of you may be in the room today and you feel that warm presence pervading all over you. But you're not a Christian. You don't understand it. I'm telling you, the Spirit of God is speaking and he is engaging even the physical faculties and the intellectual and the emotional and the psychological and every other way. He is addressing you to call you to faith in Jesus Christ today. Yes is the only right answer to that. You see, friends, our aim in serving is to see each person grow into maturity. That's what Paul describes, and I think, I think he defines maturity in this way. It's a unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God. That unity of the faith is a phrase that refers to a faithful gospel doctrine. He tells a young Timothy, hold to the faith handed down to you. Don't be adding to it, hence the illustration I used a while ago. Don't be making something it's not and don't be taking things away from it that we've put into it. Hold to it. That's the teaching. It's the work through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and why Jesus matters in relationship to God for us. And then that knowledge of the Son of God is the relational component that we looked at last week from Galatians chapter 4. To know God or rather to be known by God because of what salvation means. And so maturity for us is walking by faith and obedience to God's word by the power of Holy Spirit within you. This is why Jesus is our standard of measure because he, worked in, he walked in perfect obedience to the Father upon this earth which qualified him to be the only perfect sinless sacrifice for us which elevated him and exalted him to sit on the throne of heaven at God's right hand as the risen reigning Jesus, King and Lord of all. What is maturity? Here it is. All serve until each one trusts in Jesus to walk in obedience to the word because Jesus walked in perfect obedience to make a way for us to know God. If you think about that church, you can't help but conclude this. We got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. And it'll be the most joyful work of our life. The more we give to it, the more joy will flow from it. 
That's what maturity is. But the purpose of maturity, he tells us in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Friends, the purpose of maturity is this. God doesn't want you to be tossed, carried, driven, or deceived by ungodliness, by the things of this world that are not of him. God's purpose for your maturity into Christ's likeness is so that you will not fall prey nor be swayed by teaching that is counter to his word, no matter what kind or how much persecution may accompany its presence. When we live faithful to God's word in a world rocked by spiritual chaos, we declare the glory of the one to whom we trust, Jesus Christ. You see, friends, God is maturing you, Christian, into Jesus' likeness so you can discern the false teachers and reject those false teaching. That word discern means to cut the truth. You gotta trim the fat so you get to the meat. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the meat and you gotta trim the fat that is hanging on that so often adds flavor, that so often just tantalizes in so many ways. But in the gospel, you gotta get to the heart of what God is doing. That's why he equips us by his word and the spirit to discern so you can recognize the hollow lies and the false hope of the world. So in that instant, when you are zoning out and your defense mechanisms are dropping like flies in the blue lights and every hollow deception of what life could be is falling in front of your eyes you realize you know what that is a dream that's all it is but if I believe what I read on my social media and I try to live up to it I'm going to find it's not just a dream it becomes a nightmare because it's not even true of the people that put it on there, let alone those who buy into it. We don't give in to the enemy's schemes to deceive. Why? Because the purpose of maturity is that we discern the will of God. What's good, what's pleasing, and what is perfect. Romans 12, 2, that's why he is renewing our mind by his word to transform our life. So the purpose of maturity is to make us more like Jesus that we might walk by faith according to his word, even in hardship and persecution, because we know he stood in our place condemned before God. How though, how do we do this? Well, that's what he tells us in verse 15. This is the process that produces maturity in verse 15. Rather, rather, yes, he turns us here. Not verse 14, that's what we guard against, but here is what we pursue in our practice. Instead of being rocked by bad teachers and teaching and deceived because we've raised our sail to new ideas and we're just letting the winds and the currents of culture blow us where it will. Rather, he says, as Christians, we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love to light up the lies and expose what is not love at all. You see, this is how we conquer the enemy and his lies and deceit and accusations. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, when he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then he says this, We destroy arguments outwardly? Well, yes, but first and foremost, inwardly. Those little conversations you have in your head, don't just let them fly by unaddressed. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought 
captive to obey Christ. There is no checking out with God. Every thought. And we do this, friends. We do this. Not just you, not just me, not just uh, uh, some of us, but together we do this to become like Jesus. You see, you can grow individually, but you cannot grow up alone. No person grows to maturity to become like Jesus without others. Imagine a child who never had parental leadership. They just never grow up. And what you laugh and chuckle at at the age of four becomes kind of sad at 14 and absolutely deplorably pathetic at the age of 40 if they're still doing it. Why? Because they grew, but they never grew up. It's not an individual process that excludes other believers. And there is no maturity without being equipped and serving, without obedience by faith. And so I say to us, life point, let us not be a people who pursue growth, but give little priority to growing up. Let us press in to see everyone grow, but let us press in even more to make sure that we grow up. Maturity springs forth as we speak the truth in love among our community, and we love one another to walk together by faith in obeying Jesus. For the promise of maturity comes that God will not, no, never quit on you. Philippians 1, 6 says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Completion means God will make you perfect. He won't miss for any. As a matter of fact, in God's eyes, it's done. We have a goal of adding 100 more adults in community group in this season. It's a super aggressive goal, but I am not gonna relent. Why? Because I believe life together matters. I don't get paid more if there are more people in community group. I don't get better reviews for my job if there are more people in community group. It doesn't serve me personally in any way. As a matter of fact, I'd have a little more free time if I didn't have to worry about it. But I wouldn't be doing my job. It's not just a job for me, friends. You know that. It's not just a job for us. If you're not together, maturity isn't even possible for you. Today is a great day to get started with us. Third, third M, and I'll be quick with this one. God's plan is that when every Christian does the work of ministry for each one to mature, Jesus builds the church up in mission. You see, when the gospel is the central conversation of the church, when we are speaking the truth in love, Jesus is the one working through it all to build up his church. And he tells us that this is how the kingdom advances, that that which comes from him, every connecting joint and ligament also grows up into him. And friends, the more we grow up to be like Jesus, the greater our witness and testimony will be to penetrate darkness in the world with righteousness, with righteousness. When the church is growing by God's grace at work through her people, we're a body of people who are going to the world as God came to us in Jesus Christ, who were sharing the good news in the midst of a whole lot of bad news for a way that the world has never imagined but that God has never failed in. 
And we are a people who are applying the gospel so that every person, every person does as Paul started. We learn to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Jesus empowers the church for ministry by grace for all to become like him by the gospel.